Hello, and thank you so much for joining me today with the Belkins Season 3 Growth Podcast, Under the Spotlight. Founded in 2015, Open Telehealth is a medical certified cloud-based platform for measuring health data at home. Using an app and a wide range of medical devices, doctors can view multiple patients' data on a secure web portal. And joining me today is their CEO, Henrik Ibsen. Henrik, thank you so much for joining. You're welcome. My pleasure. Actually, we started back in 2013 with the initial pilot project but funded by the Danish government. We only went commercial with it in 2015 when it turned out that you cannot do open source as a medical device because the regulatory environment prohibits that. So we've actually been running in full production for nine years. Oh, very cool. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you for that clarification. On a, just on a high level, just to kind of kick us off, help me from just a layman's perspective understand open telehealth, exactly what it is that you guys do and the benefits of the platform. It's quite simple, actually. We enable the healthcare system to receive data from people who are outside of a medical facility to submit data and to alert doctors and nurses that interventions may need to take place because of those data being not in, in range of acceptable parameters. So basically, we get data from people, we turn it into healthcare interventions, that's what we do. And the basic idea here is, of course, to apply that in a very large scale population. So the vision that we have is that we want to be able to support a use case like a, let's say, a pregnant woman on the east coast of India in her seventh month of pregnancy is seeing complications and she needs to be scanned in order to find out if she has, if she needs a C-section or can have a normal birth. So instead of her going 400 miles to the nearest hospital, we should be able to have a mobile nurse with a, with a CTG scanner and a tablet that can check her out, send the data to a midwife in Bombay, have the results evaluated and send the response back to the lady so she can go to the hospital if needed or stay home if not. And this is the, the basic use case we want to We want to bring use, we want to bring healthcare to the world where healthcare is not available today. And this requires a huge investment in experience, of course, but also infrastructure and keeping it at a low level in terms of pricing and affordability. Otherwise, it will never go global. And this is basically what we've been driving at for nine years. Wow. No, that's pretty incredible. And thank you for that. Thank you for that use case, because that definitely makes sense to me. It could also be for the person that broke their leg going up the stairs and they can't get to the car, or it could be for anyone in a scenario like that. Well, I think that the, most, the biggest problem we have in the space of telehealth today is that most of the solutions available are expensive and dedicated to very niche things like diabetes or COPD or heart failure, whereas our platform is agnostic to, to condition diseases. So we can monitor a guy that has been uh, been put in his home from the hospital and we can monitor him 24-7 in continuous measurement, or we can monitor a, a lady that has knee replacement for three weeks in her home, or we can monitor the chronic diseases like diabetes, heart failure, and, and so on. So we, we are pretty agnostic to what kind of condition we monitor because it's, it's a platform. It's programmable by the doctors. We don't even need to do that. It is also agnostic to the cloud. It can be in any cloud anywhere. So basically, we have the ability to set it up with whatever device you need, whatever condition you want, in whatever cloud space you want, be it inside or outside your country or hospital or whatever. And this flexibility is key because if you don't do those things, then you cannot, any, you cannot even imagine going out globally in a large scale. Yeah, no, absolutely. Is that kind of where this idea came from to create Open Telehealth? The the conception, the origin story was trying to bridge that gap or help me take me through that journey a little bit. Let's rewind the clock back to 2002 when I was a, an, an inspiring IT architect and worked as a, with a big IT company. And I had this 
there was this tender for the National Health Portal in Denmark that was writing a tender for because they needed a portal that would connect all the systems, all the healthcare system in Denmark with all the people and all the clinicians, like a huge integrated portal with everything you would ever want in terms of healthcare. And I had a vision for that to be not just a system for connection and for communication, but also a development platform for the healthcare parties to expose new functionality and do more stuff. And I won that tender. So it wasn't like my big entree on the stage. And I was meeting people in the healthcare system and say, how come this is not working better? So I went on a journey to help digitize the Danish country. And I spent 15 years building national infrastructure, being medical record expert and helping the government bodies to build up infrastructure and technology to move people digitally around the country. So after that, in, in around 2012-13, I was given a task as a consultant to evaluate what is the possibilities of doing telemedicine in Denmark. And I looked at that and I found that all the systems there were basically a siloed systems that had done spent 80% of all their, their money on building locking, locking, patient user management, all that kind of basic operating system stuff. And then only a small portion of the money went into their medical device, which were actually where their heart was, because there was this was their vision, their heart blood. This is what they wanted to do. But they spent all the money on infrastructure because they had to have user management, they need to have logging, they need to have security, blah, 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 all that. And then I got like 20 of those. And I was looking at, wow, how come nobody did that platform so everybody can focus on building what's on top? So after having been part of making Denmark digital in the early, in early, in, in, 20, in, in 2010s and so on, I decided I want to look at how can we bring the patients away from the hospital and bring the healthcare to the patient instead of bringing the patient to the hospital because that's, and there's an antique thought that you have to go to a doctor to get healthcare. That's crazy because all the digitalization we have, we can bring it to the patient. Why not? So I started looking at that. I got the, the my network from government. I've been there years and, and got them to pay me money to, on a tender, of course, pay me money to build an open source telehealth system to demonstrate that it was indeed a good business case. So we did that and we launched in 2013 as a pilot. And we matured it and brought it to production. And, and after that, in 2015, it was released as open source. It hit me that you cannot do this as an unregulated uh, unregulated job. So I had to go ISO 1345 and bring the IP into a private company and thus started Open Telehealth. At that point, we started doing production and we did clinical trials. And we eventually showed that we could save 35% of the cost for people who were put into to telehealth care. And that's like $15, $18 per day wow. per patient. And that's like staggering amounts of money. And this is yeah. just putting them into a simple program where they are in their home with the tablet and colored devices, and they monitor the blood pressure and weight on a daily basis. And everything is off, they around the beep, 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 and they are invited to a consultation. So I wanted to do that. And this has been my journey ever since. I spent the last nine years on building that maturity and that platform to, to give the, cap the capacity and capability to do just that. And this is where we are right now and enjoying a, a rather substantial success post-pandemic because everybody now wants to have remote care, whereas before yeah. the pandemic was more like a curiosity. Absolutely. That has to be probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm guessing that dealing with the regulatory issues and the compliance issues has probably got to be the largest challenge that you faced at that time. Was that pretty much, the, was that the biggest mountain for you to climb? And why was it such an issue? Why is that the case? The regulatory part is because you have to have patient safety at heart. 
you need to build, do something that that is guaranteed to have a no impact on patients and safety and security when you bring them outside of the hospital. And this is why every, everything called medical devices are heavily regulated. You cannot even get the FDA approval of the CE mark without building it on an ISO 1345 quality management system. And just to put this in perspective, this certificate for the quality management system on ISO 1345, just the checklist for the items that you need to comply to, and just the checklist, mind you, is Hold on, 39 pages, one line of stuff you need to check in order for you to release something that is safe for a patient to use in a healthcare situation. So that's crazy, right? So it's a huge investment yeah. in time and effort, but most of all, it's a huge investment in bringing the production apparatus into a space where they work naturally in this very, very constricted environment about medical records and, and quality. Yeah, so this has been quite a job to keep the company uh, floating while we spend a lot of money under the hood building stuff that needs to be built in order for us to go to the market. So yeah, I think the ISO certification is, is an ongoing process. It costed 100,000 euros a year at least to keep that rolling. And it is required because otherwise the doctors will not use it. And the biggest problem we have today is that everybody and their cousin are now building remote healthcare systems because they are, ah, let's, let's make remote uh, monitoring. But they have neglected the fact that it needs to be regulatory compliant. So most of the stuff out there in the wellness, healthness, or whatever space, there is nothing there that is really, really certified medically. And, and this is a huge, this is a huge risk for us that has invested in it because people make it a bad impression of stuff that doesn't work. And they become skeptical about like the remote care and, and this is really a bad thing. So we are going overboard to make sure that the quality management and the quality of what we do is completely safe for the patient. And you know, you have no idea how complicated that is. <laughs> but it's satisfying yeah, no, it, when it works. It's satisfying it, when it works. It is. I got it. No, and then that's and it is you're exactly right. I really don't. I have I have no clue in terms of what that all entails. But from my perspective, I would think that because your platform is really it's it's almost like a, a catalyst application. Like it's connect, it's helping connect. It's not a medical device. It's not a it's not a device that's actually being used or a scanner or an X-ray. So I wouldn't think that it would have to be regulated in the same fashion just because it's being part of the healthcare system. I would think that you would have to have security around the data. You would have to be compliant around protecting people's information. But other than that, I would think it would be fine. Yeah, you would say so. But actually, the thing is, this is the thing is this. When you take data from people outside of a clinical facility, you have to use a device that as a hardware is a medical device, like the blood pressure device, which is okay. Then when you take the data from that one, if all you do is show it on another screen than the one on the device, that's okay. Then that's not, not a problem. But if you process that data, if you, for instance, say, I want to evaluate the threshold level of this data, if it's above the threshold, I want to get an alert. Now, now you're processing data and that requires a license because the processor in, in the hardware device also has a license. So now you are not just a piece of software, you are a software as a medical device, SAMD, which is in which is this thing in itself because we have medical devices that can measure your blood pressure for, from just taking a selfie video of your face. And that's definitely not hardware in any way. Well, it's the phone hardware, but it's the software that does the right. processing. So we need to apply the same strict guidelines on the software that does the same thing as the hardware in order for the patient to be guaranteed safety from the public space. And the doctors, they won't use it unless it's, it's a medical device. Wow. They, they do it sometimes anyway, but they shouldn't. And then in the future, this is going to be a, a gateway to rolling out systems production. If you don't have the regulatory compliance, it's a big thing. So it is actually a medical device, even though it is software. But we have taken pains to make it easy for our partners to build new apps on top of a pre-regulatory compliant 
basis and then just adding something on top that makes it easy for them to go to market and certify the stuff they do so they don't need to build all the boring stuff like the user management and the threshold engine and the measurement types and all that jazz i got it so from the from the patient's perspective do they have to do anything different than in terms of do they need your application to submit it to the doctors in terms of giving them the information how does that work from the patient side of things from the patient side of view there's a couple of scenarios that, that needs to be played out one of the scenarios if you are afflicted by a chronic disease or some condition that you need so you need to report data on a daily basis or maybe by a tri-weekly basis or whatever then you need to be able to take that measurements and send it to the doctor and some of the people that have been afflicted by these diseases do not have the mental acuity and the cognitive abilities to actually perform that. So we need to be able to connect, collect the data, send it through a, a, a hub and into the system without the people knowing anything because they just have wearables that validated medical devices that ship the data to us for processing. So that's one scenario. The most important scenario for us is where we combine the things of both asking questions and getting the data from the people. So we have a program environment that allows the doctor to ask questions and depending on the answer, get measurements or not. So if I ask you, do you feel fine today? And you say, no, I feel like horrible. Okay, then we'd like to have your blood pressure. And before we get the blood pressure, sit, please sit down and wait for 10 minutes so you can advantage level out and you're resting easy. And then we take the blood pressure and we can actually count on the blood pressure to be mostly correct in this case because you have been resting. So these kind of instructive uh, uh, commands and queries about the health gives you a branchable logic uh, question tree editor for the doctor so we can say okay i will ask this and if they feel suicidal i will tell them and i'll send them and ask them to take a pill and, and go see a psychiatrist or if they have feel have a headache and they are overweight i want to measure the blood pressure and maybe the weight this conditionally uh, means that the doctor can take exactly the data he wants in the way he wants it with the conditions he wants and give it to the patient so they don't have to go through a large questionnaire every time but depending on how they feel they will have smaller or bigger parts to fill out and submit this flexibility allows the doctor to build any kind of patient inquiry and dialogue that he feels is needed for whichever kind of infliction that the patients have so he has different patient groups and each of these have different dialogues like the pregnancies they have one with about the weight scale and blood pressure for preeclampsia and such and the people with hypertension they have another one and the people with CBD have another one and the people with heart failure have a different one and the asthma have another and so on and so forth every single group has their own dialogue designed by specialist doctors and nurses independently of each other and they cannot see each other's data so it's completely in parallel so this gives uh, the platform a huge flexibility to work as an operate as a medical device towards a lot of different conditions and allow the doctors and nurses to have only one app for the patients and only one application for the back end for the nurses so they don't, don't have to go out and have 50 different apps they can actually control yeah. in one. And this is a huge game changer for the clinic yeah, no, it seems like it is. Take me back to when you were kind of going through that tender process and you were developing this platform. I'm hearing that you got some investment from the government. Obviously, I'm sure you probably required more investment in order to get this fully built out. Did you seek outside investment? Did you bootstrap? You know, what, what was that process like? Yeah, we, we got in, in the 2015, when we wanted to launch commercially, we took the IP home. We went out and got some VC funding from VCs in Denmark. And we stressed that a lot. We didn't get a lot of money. And I think the biggest mistake we, we made there was we were too Danish. We thought, let's get Danish investors and do Danish uh, stuff. We regretted that later on because we didn't get a lot of money. And you know that the horizon and the vision that they have in Denmark around medical devices is not that big because it's a small country, small vision. So we, sure. would, want, we would want to do 
abroad, we would have gone to Germany, to the UK, to the US. If we did it today, the same, we would have had more time spending on the pitch deck and, and going out in a broader circle to raise the funding. Because other companies that has been on the same journey as us has raised enormous amounts of money for, with much lesser systems than ours. So we definitely haven't gotten the right track. But we are now in a very good position. We are owned by people who, who want to do this and, and want to invest in the development and the future of the platform. So all that is past history, but we did get some funding and we have been struggling for many years, uh, keeping the money flowing for us to operate. But now we're looking really good. We have a, we have hugely grown our pipeline and it's, it's gone from, from 10 million euros to 250 million euros in the pipeline wow. in no time. So the traction has been immense and the, the results have been amazing and the investors are really thrilled about it and everybody is keen to go. So we're ramping up a lot as we speak. That is incredible. That's congratulations. If you don't want me asking, what's your biggest market now? Where's the greatest demand have you found? What's the, what's your, the top market for open telehealth? Right now, I think we have been focusing on developing and feeling out the markets in the UK and Germany, basically. But this is where our pilot markets were. We have response rates of more than 30% from cold call to wow. executive board level meeting, which was totally crazy. So I think we can safely say that the Germans are the ones that are really, really putting the load right now. They are completely crazy in need of, of remote care and monitoring. But it's not yeah. just the UK, it's not just the German market. It's similar in the UK, it's it's in, in Europe, everywhere are seeing this need for remote care, following the lack of nurses and resources in the hospitals, following the increase of the demographic change where more people get older and the more people develop multimorbidity diseases. So everybody wants it. We have just feel we have filled out a few markets, but we have the response rate we have in Germany is a knockout, definitely. So that's wow. our biggest market right now. That's awesome. Yeah, the reason I was curious is just because. So to give you a little background on Misa, my mother is taking care of her sister who needs twenty four hour care. She yeah. and and my mom's no spring chicken anymore, right? And so she has to get her out of bed, and she has a special lift that does that. She recently fell and shattered her ankle and they were in a really bad spot to get her to, they had to get her to a hospital, obviously. But I mean, for aftercare, something like this would be incredible for my mom to be able to access this because she has to take her to every couple of weeks. They've got to get her up, get her into a chair, get her out to a vehicle. And my mom can't do it by herself. And so it puts this huge load on her and a lot of stress and something like this would be so good for her. It would be great for her to be able to have these appointments essentially in the house. It's a win-win for everybody, you know, you know because the, the, the issue is this. Today in the hospital, when you have some kind of friction or disease or condition, you come in for checkups, right? There's a lot of people coming in for checkups. And the fact of the matter yeah. is that most of the people that do come for checkups, they are actually quite okay. And fortunately, they can go home with the message, you're doing good, Miss Ripson, be safe, go home. And I feel, oh, wow, I'm so relieved. That's so good. I'm so happy. But why should I go there in the first place? Because I'm okay, basically. Right. So if we have the remote monitoring, then the hospital, instead of processing a lot of people where most of them actually don't have any issues right now, they will be able to see, okay, who are the ones flagging non-compliance? Those are the ones I want to see because I have limited resources in my hospital. I can't see everybody. Right. So if I, instead of seeing all the ones that are okay, just see the ones that really need it. I can look at my charts. Okay, I'm going to see these guys and these guys and these guys. Then I'll put them, pull them into the hospital. That means my resources will be we leverage 100% in people who actually need care when I can control who comes to the hospital in the first place. So we have some ancient times about how we do, how we provide care that needs to change radically. 
And of course, they would be saving a lot of resources, but from the patient's point of view, from your mom's point of view, this would be so amazing that she could do her reporting, most of the reporting, actually on a daily basis. So she should be very quickly catch if something goes wrong. If you get the, an, an infection, the elderly people say, ah, it's nothing. I can do it. i just take a couple of pills. And then eventually they're not in an ambulance on the way to the emergency care because they wasn't, wasn't taking care of it. But if you ask them on a daily basis, then the nurses will catch those changes and solve the changes very quickly and react to it and do an intervention to make sure that they preventively can go to own doctor or get medications that prohibit, that provide them with the needed care so they avoid going to the hospital. Which is basically because hospitals are dangerous places. People die in hospitals. You don't want to go there. So yeah. everybody wants to have this, but for some reason it doesn't. It doesn't go. And not, a lot of that has to do with reimbursement. That the hospital is only getting paid when people actually go inside the hospital. Mm. It already used to, but now the situation is shifting because now the hospital are in in need of resources. They don't have enough nurses and doctors. So now it's not a problem of paying and getting reimbursed. Now it's a problem even providing the sufficient amount of care. So we are shifting from a reimbursement-based um, incentive to a, a actually a healthcare incentive because they need to provide the healthcare. So now they don't care about the money. They just need to have the telehealth because otherwise we can't deliver the care. So it is shifting a bit yeah. right now. And I think this is one of the reasons we are seeing this uptake and this in sharply increased demand for telehealth in the market right now. I got it. Who's your customer? So are you, are, is your customer the private practice pediatrician? Is it the health system, the large hospital, or is it everyone? Is it all of the above? No, it's actually none, none of those really. What I do is much like what Microsoft does. They provide Microsoft Windows to make things work in the base level. And then people oh. build on top of that to make things valued. So what I provide is a fully functional telehealth system that has the platform and the apps and the portals and all the needed stuff to roll it out and put in production. And I just closed a client in Berlin. They went from zero to hero in 80 weeks. They started from signing the contracts with full production eight weeks. And this is because the platform basically has all you need. But having a functional platform that can work in eight weeks is not the goal. The goal is to build a platform that allows the client after those eight weeks to build their own app, their own portal on top of the platform so they can have their own development and their own special treatment uh, dialogue or whatever they need. So this is going to be their system. So I want to build the platform like the Microsoft Windows that allow people to develop on top of that without having to reinvent the wheel and build the printer drivers and all that jazz. They want I want them to be able to go to the market exceptionally quickly because they have a basis that is already pre-regulatory compliance. All they have to do is build the top layer Certified and go to a market, and this is this is this means that our clients are the ones that want to provide healthcare systems to the market. The independent software vendors, the majority of the hospital chains, big insurance companies, we actually have all of those as our clients. And and the one that we pursue now are, are, are private hospitals that have their own IT department, so they can be their own supplier, or companies that has an ambition to be in the market with telehealth and do not have it already. I see. How did you go to how did you go to market originally? Is that was that your approach initially when you were looking to get your first customers when you were looking to acquire oh. business? The reason I'm asking is because I would think that the message would be so much more received, well received and emotionally received by the healthcare system, the doctor that's, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. And then they could leverage the person that they need to, hey, we need this. But how what was your approach there? I think my approach was to try to sell them the system that allowed them to do different kind of telehealth monitoring, home monitoring solutions, and it was like a complete system. But take into account this, that we are now in 2022, we are seeing 
a uptick in interest for remote-based monitoring and telehealth because people have realized about the pandemic what it means, what it actually means. Now rewind the clock and go 10 years back. That's where we started. 10 years ago, no, nobody really knew what the hell we were talking about. It was like, tell her what? Yeah, yeah, we can have a video consultation with the patient. We have that already. It works fine. No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. It's like remote. Mon- what? They don't get it. So we were like five, six, seven years ahead of the curve in terms of technology and solutions. So when we go out to the international market and try to tell them how ingenuity, how, how much ingenuity we had in this platform, how genius we were in doing what we did, they didn't get it because mm. they hadn't seen the need for that. Nobody had experiences doing this. So there was completely black mumbo jumbo. We have FaceTime. We can just yeah. FaceTime them. Yeah, FaceTime. It's fantastic. So this was really, really top sales. So I think we were working, we went to market with a system and we were going out with a white label platform that basically got into end solution white label. That's what we tried to do. And we actually succeeded in that. So to some extent, we got some excellent deals with Siemens, Altenears and, and, and Baywater in the UK and others. But it didn't really take off because they also have the same problem. When they went out to their clients and tried to explain what this could do, they said, what? 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 Yeah. They, they didn't get it. So the fact was that we were seven or eight years in front of the market and still are, basically, is it was almost killing us at the time because we were too mature in the immature markets. So we had to ex- we had to educate the clients in what to what they really wanted. And then when they found out that they needed something like remote-based mode, then they started looking at all those and, oh, this guy has nice features. They, but they had no experience. So we felt we were outcompeted by totally archaic systems that has very nice wrapping, like from Philips and whatever. And it didn't work. But then after two years, they found out, oh, they didn't work. Then they came back and they said, okay, now we tried something else. It doesn't work. We need to have your system. And this, but this takes a lot of time. So this first, of course, five years ago, we started making educated cases and said, okay, maybe we need to shift away from the white label platform and do something more than that. We still do white label platform, but now we also want to be development platform. We need to integrate to this. So all the data in our platform is available through APIs, which are open, like just like Mitch Prima is open source, well-documented and available for everybody. So if you have this in, let's say, the municipality in Stockholm is running the system as a pilot. And then and the reason they did that was because all the data in our platform is available on the APIs for third parties. So we give the third parties the source code to our app for free and say, hey, guys, play around, build your own app, knock yourself out and go through the APIs to get the data in the Stockholm municipality system if they allow you to, which means that all the entrepreneurs in the entire Sweden can build apps for the Stockholm just by taking our apps, modifying a little bit, adding some salt and pepper from secret source, putting on the market and say, hey, we have a fantastic app for chronic kidney disease with a very, very small runway, big impact, business immediately, and they didn't spend much money on investment. And this is, of course, a huge benefit for the Stockholm municipalities because they get a host of apps for every kind of stuff that mm-hmm. I didn't control, I didn't manage, I didn't prevent it or prohibit it. I just made it possible. So we found out that if we open this to an o- make build an open ecosystem and get it, get out of the way for those who have all the money and all the will right. to do that and just make it life easier for them, we would be in a better position. So we are actually like a, a lone, lone ranger in this market because nobody else are building a platform and making it available or giving their app source away for free. Nobody's doing that. Yeah. So it's difficult to say that we have a lot of competition in that particular area, but in at the end user level, of course, we have competitors. And but still, we're still winning tenders. And all in the, even the most hard, the toughest tenders in the world are things that we win because we have these nine years of hardcore experience. So so we're doing good, no doubt about it. 
And that's good. And if you're listening from America, a tender is, we don't leverage tenders. It's basically a request for pricing or an RFP. And so when he says that they're winning tenders, he means that they're winning bids on winning business. Yeah, I can only imagine that you probably spent a good amount of time and maybe even a good amount of money getting the messaging, creating brand, creating awareness. So this could be on someone's radar, because that's one of the biggest problems. I think when you're in, when you're in a space that the market's not ready for, or they're not educated on you, it's almost like you either have to accept it and just grow like a snail and move like a snail, or you have to invest a bunch of money and a bunch of time and human capital in telling people and getting the message out, standing on the street corner and evangelizing and being like, this is the problem. This is the solution. Is that what you experienced? Yeah, it is. I've been on the snail journey for sure, because the power to go out and broadcast is also one that requires a lot of money, and we didn't have that. Yeah, that was one thing. Another thing was that the market wasn't receptive because they basically didn't understand what we were saying because they hadn't any experience with it. So it's like to sell, it's like to going back to the tribal age and trying to sell them a car. So what should I do with a car? What's the what use do I have of a car? What's what the magic? Go take it away. No, I can't use this. But we were too much ahead of this to make sense to most people. And those who felt compelled by it were very few and far between and didn't have a lot of money. So I spent most of my time doing the snail job, you know, like really pushing the pushing the things forward in snail, in snail, in snail tempo, all the while trying to raise money to keep the wheels rolling. So it was been it's been a very hard journey. And, and the most of the frustrating part was whenever something really happened in remote care, they took something else on the market because they didn't know we were there or they knew we were there, but we were not present in Canada, for instance, or whatever. And if you don't have the presence there, there's like, yeah, yeah are we going to base ourselves on a very small company in Denmark for a big rollout in Toronto? No, no. No, it's very nice, but we're not going to do that. So much of the problem we have, even when we had a good match, we didn't cut it because people looked at us, okay, we have, this is a health insurance company. We have 10 million insurance takers. Are we going to base a strategic effort on a company with 10 employees in Denmark that can roll over any time of day? Not happening. So I think that this was the start of the strategy for the partner plan, but the partner strategy where we go and do partnership with bigger companies that have bigger muscles and can go out convincingly and tell them, we can do this. And then they can trust them. They trust us in turn. So trying to build those relationships have been focused on our marketing because that's the what that's what you can do when you don't have a lot of money. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. The marketing and the awareness building, but we're first starting on that. And we're making good progress, but it's not cheap. Well, it is cheap. Yeah. It's not expensive as such, but it's cost money anyway to do this. Absolutely. Yeah, it requires a lot of investment. I definitely get that. If you had to go back and tell your, give yourself advice back in 2010, 2011, when all things, all of this was starting to really form in your head, what would what advice would you give yourself about what you were about to embark on? I would say a couple of things. I think the first thing I would say, I would actually shout it in my own face. VCs are not your friends. <laughs> they do not want the best for you. Be careful. Get other strategic investors. And let me spell that out. Strategic investors is important. The other ones is not your friend. I'll say that a lot of times. And this is the most important lesson I learned. A lot of other lessons as well. What do you need? What do you need to grow the company? The maturity of what you need to, how much you need to invest in quality management. That was staggering. That was my advice. And then I would keep my mouth shut about all the trouble on the way because if I tried to tell myself eight years ago what I was going to go through, I probably wouldn't have done it. Sure. 
So it's, uh, yeah, but definitely the part of the investors is a really important part. The VCs are horrible people. No, they're not actually nice people, but the business they drive is horrible. It's really tough. And But I didn't have any choice at the point, but those are the ones with the money and I had to go with those. And actually the guys that I found, they were quite decent and very, very committed and very loyal and, and that we really tried, but they were not strategic investors per se. Mm. So if I had found strategic investors, I would be in a better place today. But I have to be very thankful for the people that invested in the company because they made it possible. And I was thankful for they were there and thank God for that. But today I wouldn't go with VC investor. I would go to strategic one and I would wait. I would hold back until such one manifested. Got it. No, that's really interesting to hear you say that. So I've had several of these discussions and I talk to business owners, entrepreneurs every day. And it's so interesting. Last week, I talked to a gentleman that said kind of something similar. He said, you've got to have a really thick skin and you've got to have a tough chin because these people are going to call your baby ugly. Like they are going to look at your kid and go, nope, nope. And I still haven't figured it out. Is it just this, is it just this dog eat dog world that the dichotomy that's created when you have a VC environment where all they're focused on is an exit. So they only invest to get a return on their investment, but not actually to partner with you. Is that what you think is really the root of the problem? Or where do you think this is? What's the vein? The root of the problem is the fact that you want partners in your venture that helps you help yourself which means that the ones you want on the board, the ones you want interested in your success, it's the ones that benefit from your success in more ways than one. And the investors that usually come out of the VCs, they are investing in hundreds of companies. And they frankly don't give a hoot about what happens to most of them because they sound like, okay, one out of 10 is going to give us money. The rest is going to be flukes, right? We know that already when we invest and they we do it anyway and we go through the motion. So you kind of get the feeling that I don't really believe in you, but I'm hoping you to perform and I really want, but they are not bringing their network. They're not bringing their passion. They're not bringing their self. They're not engaged. They're not interested. They look at the reports on a monthly basis. Oh, what about the burn rate and the revenue? And then they will probably force you or maybe create an incentive to burn the money they invested in you because they want to see results. So if you want to be frugal, they say, oh, you have to invest. And because that means you will quicker move to the point where you need more investments and have to give up more shares. To, and then at some point it tips over and then you're not your company anymore. I've been there. Uh, that can be a very frustrating journey, but yeah, it's, it's true. You need to be tough skin, but most of all, I think the most important part of doing this is to have the passion. If you have the passion, then you have to fight. If you have the fight, then you have the will to win. If you have the will to win, you can overcome everything. But it comes from the passion. You have to bring the passion into what you do because you need to motivate people, clients. So people have to look at you and listen to yourself. Oh, this guy is really passionate about this. There's so something in this that's interesting because this guy is really passionate. And I've been very passionate about this from the beginning. And this is what is driving me. It's not the outlook I'm getting rich or it's just doing good and creating the platform doing good. And I must realize down the road, unfortunately, I found out that if I want to do good at the level of Bill Gates, I need to make a ton of money. I probably need to be a bastard on the way to make some real, to cross some, cross some people and step on toes to get there. And I don't have that. I'm not good at that. So that's probably why we haven't made it big yet. <laughs> but, but I think we now have, we have the setup now to do well. We have the timing and everything's excellent and we still have the passion. So I think the strategic investors, they are bringing network and their passion and their network again. And this is the huge difference between the institutional investors and the ones that you really want to talk to, like the ones that have passion in what you do. Or it could be an investor like an LT company, from my point of view, that 
can benefit from using your platform to sell the hardware along with the platform to another client. So they have an interest in you gaining success because then they also get success and everybody's happy. Yeah. That's also a strategic investor that doesn't have necessarily need passion, but has a, like a, a coinciding goal. So businesses that, that you can connect. So we are trying to pull together partners like that benefit from us being successful. So they will be successful as well and building the ecosystem around that. Yeah, that's good. Listen, I know we have a little bit of time left, but I think that that's a perfect place for us to wrap this up. That was fantastic. If you've been listening and you've enjoyed this, thank you. Subscribe. I appreciate your time. That's the only thing that we can't get back. So thanks for spending it with me and enjoying this discussion here with Henrik. This has been Belkin Season 3 Podcast under the spotlight.